Good evening and welcome again to our Bible study series, Show Us Your Glory. Uh, I'm really excited about this study that we're doing, and for weeks I've just been stuck on this one theme, the glory of God. And I'm really looking forward to the Holy Spirit revealing more to us as we go along. This is not the kind of a Bible study where I'm sitting here and I already know everything about the subject and I'm going to tell you what I know. I'm looking to God to reveal more of himself and more of this truth to us as we dig in together. So let's be expecting the Holy Spirit to open our eyes, open up our hearts, give us even greater revelation and understanding concerning this great topic. Now, just to uh, recap and review a few things, we started in part one of this series, uh, basically just an introduction to the topic. We now want to begin tonight in part two of what will be seven parts, and the outline notes and previous recordings are all available or will be available at our website, new-life-ministries.org. Uh, Pastor David has been away in Cuba for the last week or ten days, so I'm not sure uh, the date when he returns, but I'm sure he'll get caught up on all of that once he's back. In any event, we saw that the glory of God is something difficult to define. And really, it's only associated with God. So when God manifests himself, there you have glory. If God is not there, then there's no glory. And so, in one sense, we... We use the analogy of fire. Fire produces light. It gives off heat, smoke. It consumes things. But if you ever think about it, fire in itself is a mysterious thing. You can't put a flame in a bottle and study it. It has to be actively consuming some fuel. Otherwise, the fire goes out. Well, God is a consuming fire. And wherever you have fire, you have the evidence of that fire. Glory is sort of the radiance, the heat, the light, the evidence, the manifestation that always shines forth from God or whatever God is doing. The Old Testament word, kabod, literally means weight, something heavy, something so full. It, it's just weighed down. It, it, to me, it communicates the fullness of who God is. His mercy, His grace, His love, His power, His justice, everything that makes God God is present in His glory. And the scripture that started this whole study for me is a very well-known verse, but I realize after 42 years, I really don't understand it yet. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23, where Paul is explaining justification by faith. And he goes on in the next verse to say, and they are justified freely by God's grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And we're going to return to that verse later on in this study to dig even deeper, but this really grabbed my attention several months back. All have sinned, missed the mark, we saw, that word literally means, what is the mark? The mark is the glory of God. And fallen man falls short of that mark. He cannot hit the bullseye, which is God's glory. So obviously, what we're going to find eventually when we get into the New Testament, the purpose of God in redemption is not just 
to pardon our sins and to give us an escape from hell. Thank God for that. But it's far greater than that. God wants to restore us to that mark so that we hit the bullseye, which is God's glory. Fallen man cannot see or understand or obtain the glory of God. He falls short every time. And I want you to keep that verse in the back of your mind as we move forward tonight, that God's ultimate purpose is to restore us to that relationship with the glory of God. <clears throat> now, if you're following along in the notes, we've come to part two, which is page five in the outline. And again, the entire series we're calling Show Us Your Glory. And tonight we want to begin in part two, Glory Manifested in the Old Testament. Glory, we're going to find, is something visible, something manifested, something that people witness, feel, see, experience, something that they are very much aware of. And by the way, as I'm driving down the road today in my car, I'm listening to the Christian uh, radio station, and there's a song that I've heard several times now that they're playing quite a bit. I don't know the name of the song, but I know in the chorus of the song, it says, open up the heavens, we want to see you, show us your glory, show us your glory. Well, I about went through the roof of the car when I heard that, because that's been my heart cry. Lord, we want to see you. The world needs to see you. And interestingly enough, God's response is they already have. He's already shown us his glory. And as I mentioned, fallen man is basically incapable of seeing or understanding that glory. We saw last time in Romans 1, where Paul talks about the fallen state of man, he said there, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. They weren't able to glorify God. They weren't able to acknowledge God, even in his creation. But their thinking became futile, their foolish hearts were darkened, they claimed to be wise but became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. goes on to say, they worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. So, one of the great purposes of redemption in bringing us back to himself, God pardoning all of our sins, paying the price through the blood of his son on the cross, it's to bring us back into that right relationship with God where we can glorify him and worship and serve the creator rather than created things. The majority of mankind today is locked into a form of worship. They may not call it worship, but it is. They're worshiping created things. They're, maybe they're worshiping themselves. They're worshiping their own works. Or they're worshiping something created rather than worshiping the creator. We can really come back into true worship of the creator only through Jesus Christ, his shed blood, and the redemption that he purchased on Calvary. Now, glory in the Old Testament. Um, I think we mentioned that the word glory appears about 200 times just in the Old Testament. So it's a major theme throughout the Old Testament scriptures. And we want to, first of all, look at a number of scriptures that reveals something very powerful to us. God's glory already has been manifested everywhere. Everywhere. 
wherever you look, you can see the glory of God. And let's just take a look at a couple of these scriptures, and I think you'll understand what we're saying. In Numbers chapter 14, starting with verse 21 to 23, when Moses and the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they had grieved God and failed to believe in God. God is really angry at this point, and here's what he says, Numbers 14, starting with verse 21. Nevertheless, as surely as I, and this is the Lord speaking, as surely as I live, and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, please note those words, as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. So, interestingly, God says of those Israelites who failed to believe in him that they had seen his glory. Very clearly, verse 22, not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt will ever see the land. And here's why. Verse 21, as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, the whole earth is filled with the manifestation of God's glory. Look at the next verse. In Isaiah 6, where Isaiah had a vision of the God of glory, he saw him high and lifted up. The train of his glory filled the whole temple. And there was smoke and there were angels flying around singing praises to God. Here's what it says. Isaiah 6, verse 3. And they, that's the seraphs, the, the heavenly beings, were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Interesting. Now, if you go back to Romans 1, and we're not going to do that, but in Romans 1, a little earlier on, Paul says that God, through his creation, has already revealed his invisible power and wisdom. In other words, the whole creation reveals the glory of God. And in my science classes, I often tell my students, you may be bored, you know, with whatever subject we're looking at, whether it's fish or uh, trees or stars or chemistry or physics, mathematics, whatever it is, but if you get the right perspective, everything suddenly becomes very exciting because it's a revelation of God's glory. Whether you're looking at a little microscopic one-celled creature under the microscope or looking through a telescope at a distant galaxy, everything is shouting out the glory of God. It's something that goes beyond our ability even to take in. That's what glory does to you. The whole earth is full of it. The whole creation speaks of God's glory. And the prophet Habakkuk, in chapter 2, verse 14, prophesied of a coming day when the earth will be filled not just with the glory of God, note what it says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Although right now the earth is full of God's glory, most people don't know anything about it. They're blind. The God of this world has blinded their eyes. They're more interested in dancing with the stars or some foolishness on uh, the Internet 
rather than seeing the revelation of God in his works. But the day is coming when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Now, I mentioned whether you look through a microscope or through a telescope, especially when you look up, there's an amazing revelation of glory. Psalm 19, one of my favorite passages. Uh, let's read from verse 1 to 6. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The heavens are not silent. They're declaring something. The psalmist, who frequently would sit out on a Judean hillside at night with his sheep, the psalmist David, he would look up into the sky and say, Lord, what is man that you're mindful of him when I consider the sun, the moon, the stars, the things up there in the sky that you've made. They're shouting out a message. Notice all the words that the psalmist uses here. Declare, proclaim, they pour forth speech, display speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth. So the heavens are proclaiming a message. What is it? They're declaring the glory of God. Every single star is shouting out, Look at me. I am a revelation of the glory of God. The planets, the solar system, the sun, the moon, every part of it is a revelation and I like the word display, because we're going to look later on at the fact that glory is often seen. It's displayed. So God is displaying his glory in the earth. He's displaying his glory above the earth, in the heavens. So putting all this together, God's glory is manifested everywhere in the universe. But... This brings us to a very important point that we want to spend some time with. God has always chosen to manifest his glory in a special way in his chosen dwelling place. And as you move through the scriptures and you uh, cross over from one dispensation to another... God's chosen dwelling place changes, but one thing never changes. He always chooses to display his glory in a special way in that temple, tabernacle, or dwelling place of his choosing. Let's look at a number of examples of this. In the case of Moses and the children of Israel, under the old covenant of Sinai. They had, of course, the tent of meeting. We call it the tabernacle of Moses. And from Exodus 25 all the way to the last chapter, Exodus 40, chapter after chapter, it talks about all of the details of that tabernacle, how it was be, to be constructed, the tent pegs, the poles, the curtains, the altar, every part of it, God revealed the plan to Moses. When the whole thing was finished, 
It's almost like God was waiting for that final peg to be put in place. Then he could do what he wanted to do. Exodus 40, verses 34 and 35. Then, and in context, it says that Moses had completed the tabernacle. He had done everything the Lord commanded him. It is now finished. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, I want you to notice something. God already told them in Numbers 14 that the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth. The whole earth is full of God's glory, the angels cried. But, apparently, in the tabernacle, God's glory was manifested in an even greater way, in a singular, special way, so much so, and we're going to come back to this point later, verse 35 says, Moses could not enter. He could not enter. Remember, glory means something heavy, something weighty. Whatever this is, this glory that filled the tent, Moses literally could not enter in there. It was so full, so thick, so heavy, he could not even enter into it. And we, of course, saw earlier in Exodus where he prayed that prayer, Lord, show me now your glory. Basically, God says, Moses, you don't know what you're asking for. You can't look at my face and live. So there's something about the glory of God that is just overwhelming. But our point for now is the tabernacle was God's chosen dwelling place. Once it's complete, what does he do? He fills it with his glory. All right? Now, moving ahead in time to the time of Solomon, David wanted to build the temple, but God told him he couldn't because he was a man of bloodshed. But his son Solomon would build this temple. When the temple was completed, notice in every case, God waits until the temple is finished. Then he comes and fills it. In the case of Solomon's temple, we read about it in 2 Chronicles 5, verses 13 and 14. It says, then, and in context again, then after it was completed, then the temple of the Lord was filled with a cloud, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. Sounds a lot like the portion we just read in Exodus. Moses couldn't enter. Here, the priests, that's what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to serve God in this temple, but when the glory came and filled it, they could not perform their service. It was overwhelming. The weight of God's glory overwhelmed them. All right? Moving further in time, after the Babylonian captivity and Ezra and Nehemiah uh, came back to Jerusalem, they rebuilt the walls, they rebuilt the temple. The two prophets, Zechariah and Haggai, were the ones prophesying during that time. Haggai has a very interesting prophecy in Haggai chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 3 to 9, and this is a reference to the restored temple, not the temple of Solomon. That was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. This is the restored temple that came after Solomon's temple, starting with verse 3. Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory. How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in the natural? It wasn't nearly as spectacular 
as Solomon's temple. But now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea, and the dry land, I will shake all nations, and the desired of all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. Here again, God promises this is my house, this is my temple, I will fill it with my glory. I will fill this house with glory. Now, the next one is especially interesting, and we're going to look at this even deeper at a later date, but some of you may have already heard us teach on this. In John 1, verse 14, John says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Speaking of Christ, of course. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, the words here are very important, especially in the original Greek some translations even capture the, the full meaning. But let's go through this carefully. The Word, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. All things were made by that Word. That Word became flesh and made his dwelling, dwelt among us. The Word, of course, being Christ. The incarnate Word, the Word became flesh made his dwelling. The Greek word there is a very peculiar word, and it has a specific meaning. It literally means to tabernacle. It actually comes from the word for tabernacle, pointing back even to the tabernacle of Moses. The Amplified Bible actually translates it that way. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Why would John use an expression like that? Well, remember, Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he was coming not only to be a sacrifice on the cross, but he's also the messenger of a new covenant. And that new covenant would essentially make you and me little temples, temples of the Holy Spirit, temples where God can tabernacle, where God can take up residence, where God can dwell. For God has never really wanted to dwell in temples made with hands. The real temple he wants to live in is you and me. So the fact that John uses these words is very profound. Christ basically came as a tabernacle full of glory. That's what he's saying. The word became flesh, and he was a tabernacle full of glory. We have seen glory in that tabernacle. We have seen his glory, the glory of of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, later on in parts 4 and 5, we're going to dig much deeper into the New Testament aspects of this, how we become temples of the Holy Spirit, 
God is joining all believers together in one holy temple. And guess what? He wants to fill that temple with his glory also. It's called the glorious church. But we'll wait until we get to that part to go into any more depth on that. Moving along in time, we come to what is generally recognized as the millennial temple. There will be another temple built in Jerusalem for the thousand-year reign here on earth. Ezekiel speaks a great deal about that period of time and particularly about that millennial temple. Here's just one sampling of many scriptures that you can find, especially in the last oh, eight or nine chapters of Ezekiel. But in Ezekiel 43, verses 2 to 5, And I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters, and the land was radiant with his glory. The glory of the Lord, verse 4, entered the temple through the gate facing east, then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The whole earth is full of his glory, but every temple God has chosen to fill with his glory. What good news that is for you and me. He's chosen us to be his temple now and how much more he wants to fill this present temple with the glory of God. And that's why we've been sharing for some weeks now, we don't come to church on Sundays or whenever we gather to play church. We're coming so that God can fill the temple with his glory. We don't go to church. We are the church. The building isn't the church. The church goes to the building. And the church <clears throat> is glorious. The church God wants to fill with his glory. It's, it's everywhere in the Bible. Whenever God has had a temple, he has wanted to fill it with his glory. <clears throat> All right. Look in Revelation 15. This is another temple in heaven. Some people believe that it's the temple in the new heaven. It's different from the new Jerusalem. In Revelation 15, verses 5 and 8, we read, After this, I looked, and in heaven the temple. So very clearly, this temple is in heaven. I looked, and in heaven the temple, that is, the tabernacle of the testimony was opened, verse 8, and the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the temple <clears throat> excuse me, until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Last but not least, in eternity, there is a temple. It's the eternal temple tabernacle of God, the eternal temple or dwelling place of God, we read about it in Revelation chapter 21, and I'm going to start in verse 3 and skip around a little bit. I'm reading from the New King James Version, and it's interesting, the reason I chose New King James is because of the way they translate verse 3. It's closer to the real meaning. It says, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. Some of the other Bibles, they say the dwelling of God is with men. Same idea, but it's the same Greek word that we saw in John 1. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Well, now... The eternal tabernacle of God is with men. That's what John is understanding here in Revelation 21. Let's read verse 3 again. 
And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Verse 10, And he, the angel, carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, verse 11, notice carefully, having the glory of God, showed me the holy Jerusalem, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Drop down to verse 22. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Well, if you study this whole chapter, what John is seeing is a vision of the bride of Christ. Come, I'll show you the wife of the Lamb. Well, the wife is the holy Jerusalem. She has the glory of God. The glory of God illuminates every part of eternity because the glory of God fills the temple of the new Jerusalem. God and the Lamb are its temple. And what a, what a blessed hope we have. We're not just going to get a glimpse of glory. We're going to live in the full glory of God for all eternity. We can't even begin to comprehend what that means. The glory of God illuminated it. No need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it. There, the glory of God is the light. A couple of other related scriptures as we close out this particular section about God's glory being especially manifested in his dwelling place. Look, for instance, in Psalm 26, verse 8. The psalmist says, I love the house where you live, O Lord, the place where your glory dwells. That's where God lives. God lives in glory. His house is always full of glory. And he's called us to be the house. And so, obviously, he wants to dwell in that house, and thus his glory be manifested there. Psalm 73, verse 24 says, You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. That's what awaits us. Take us into glory. And coming back to the tabernacle of Moses, Exodus 29, verse 43, it says there, in the context, at the altar, at the very entrance into the tent, there... Also, I will meet with the Israelites, and the place will be consecrated by my glory. Very interesting. So, from Moses' day right through eternity, God's chosen dwelling place has always been the place where God fills with his glory. The whole earth is full of his glory, but he fills it even more. So much so, Moses couldn't enter there. The priests couldn't do anything there. And even in heaven, we read, the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God, and no one 
could enter the temple. No one could enter the temple. Now, this kind of leads us into the next part of this study, and I doubt that we're going to be able to get too far with this tonight, but I want to at least introduce it. Remember, the real meaning of the word kabod in the Old Testament, the word translated glory, is weight or heavy. And what we often see is there's something about the glory of God that just overwhelms us. In some cases, it literally knocks people to the ground. They can't stand. They can't speak. They can't function. It is so overwhelming. And I would maintain, as we pointed out at the beginning of this whole series, the heart of man longs to connect with that glory. And anything less than that will never satisfy. I don't care how much money, how many cars, how many trophies, how much power, how much influence. You can fill in the blanks. Anything under the sun, Solomon discovered, always falls short. Nothing under the sun can satisfy. Oh, it may for a season, but then there's always something else we're longing for. We need a bigger house, a better job, more money, a new car, a new girlfriend. There's always something more that we're longing for, and the devil puts this lie into our head. If I can just achieve that, then I will have arrived. Then I will be satisfied. And he keeps leading us along, leading us along, in some cases, right through to our grave, chasing after the wind. Nothing but the glory of God can really satisfy that deep inner longing. Solomon put it best, God has placed or set eternity in the hearts of men. It's something he stamped right inside the heart when he made man in his own image. Nothing else will satisfy, but we got a major problem. All have sinned and fall short of that glory. So we must find the redemption that is available to us through the cross of Christ so that that restoration process can begin. But we... We're always looking for thrills. People go to amusement parks to get on, you know, the roller coasters or to go to some dazzling play or light show or rock concert or whatever, sports events. And isn't it amazing, no matter how overwhelming the performance was, after a day or so, the whole thing wears off. Well, those fall short of the weight of God's glory. When we come into contact with the manifest presence of God, the overshadowing glory of God, it is something that even the word amaze falls short. Even the word overwhelms seems to fall short. But for lack of better words, The weight of God's glory is something that amazes us, it overwhelms us, it puts us in awe, and it actually transcends anything that we can understand. If you can understand it, if you can measure it, calculate it, and put it into a box, then it's not glory. The glory of God is something that goes way beyond our comprehension. It is supernatural, it is divine, and it is overwhelming. I love that song we have been singing, I'm overwhelmed. Well, that's the testimony of someone who has touched the glory of God. It's overwhelming. Let's look at a few scriptures. Exodus 15, verse 11, right after the display of God's power and glory in parting the Red Sea, here's the song they sang. Who among the gods is like you, 
O Lord, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. Sadly, that word awesome has kind of taken on a whole new meaning in our modern vernacular. Now we have awesome cars and, you know, an awesome teacher and awesome this and that was an awesome dinner. Well, the word awesome in the Bible was never used to refer to dinners or cars or such created things. Awesome in the Bible always refers to the glory of God. It's something that just puts us in absolute awe. It's not a scary kind of a fear in a bad sense, but it's just, whoa, mind-blowing. I'm in awe of your glory. So that's what glory does to us. It's awesome. It puts us in awe. And we read this verse a little while ago, but I want to read it again now in this context. When the glory of God filled the tabernacle of Moses, we read, uh, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, Moses could not enter the tent of meeting. Couldn't enter. He, he couldn't even stand in it. It was so powerful, so overwhelming. And a couple of thoughts come to my mind as I ponder that. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us flesh and blood cannot enter the kingdom of God. In other words, flesh and blood can't have anything to do with God's glory. It, it can't enter. Moses could not enter into that glory. So the this fleshly part of us, the flesh and blood realm, has nothing to do with God's glory. And remember... Moses had already seen evidences of God's glory. My goodness, he spent 40 days and 40 nights at least two times up on the summit of Mount Sinai in the cloud of God's glory. And he had a taste of what this thing is, but remember he was also warned, Moses, you can't look at my face and live. There, there's something so transcendent, it surpasses anything we can know or understand or even experience. That's what makes glory glorious. And again, we just looked at this verse, but I want to read it again. In the days of Solomon, when the glory of God filled the temple, it says in Second Chronicles 5, the trumpeters and singers joined in unison as with one voice to give praise and thanks to the Lord. Accompanied by trumpets, cymbals, and other instruments, they raised their voices in praise to the Lord and sang, He is good. His love endures forever. Then the temple of the Lord was filled with a cloud, and the priests could not perform their service. I like in the New American Standard, it says the priests could not stand to minister. They couldn't stand. They were knocked to the ground. They, they couldn't do anything in the weight of God's glory. They couldn't perform their service. They couldn't even stand up to do their normal duties in the temple. Why? Because the glory of the Lord had filled the temple of God. There, there's something about God's glory that is intended to do that with us. It, it's, it's humbling. It brings us to our knees, literally. It overshadows us. We feel small, and yet we feel loved. We realize, who am I to even be here? in this glorious radiance of the Creator God. Look back again in Habakkuk chapter 3. 
verses 1 through 4. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe. There it is again. Awesome. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens, and His praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from His hand where His power was hidden. I stand in awe. I stand in awe. It's just something we can't quite fathom, the glory of God. And yet, God wants to show it to us. He wants us to have that experience. I made reference to this next passage a while ago. Uh, Psalm 8, also penned by the psalmist David. He says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You know, Pastor Quasey and I were discussing this after the service on Sunday. I'm very concerned, especially for the younger generation that's coming up now. We are just surrounded with gizmos and gadgets. Our ears are plugged with earphones, and we're wired 24-7 with music, with videos. We're constantly being assaulted with media, with noise, and I find that very few people even know how to sit down, be quiet, let alone pray, read the scriptures, meditate, but just to get quiet and contemplate. That's what David's talking about here. He had time just to sit out on a hillside at night and look up and notice his words, when I consider, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars. That takes time. You, you need to study the thing. You need to know a little bit about the sun, the moon, the stars. You need to get a, a book and read up a little bit on astronomy, understand this vast universe that God made, and then think about it. Consider the heavens, and then consider the fact that he loves you. David found that thought overwhelming. He said, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You know, just a, a surface consideration of the vast universe the unbelievable amount of wisdom and power that went into creating the matter and energy that makes up this, this universe, it's mind-boggling. We, we can't even fathom the amount of energy locked up in one single atom, let alone the 10 to the 85th power atoms that make up the universe. Unbelievable amounts of power and energy in the creation. Well, if that much power is in the creation, how much power does our Creator possess? You have to think about these things. You have to reflect on these things and then wonder, wow, God loves me? God knows my name? 
He knows the number of hairs on my head. He knows where I live. He knows when I sit down and when I rise up. He knows my thoughts even before I think him. And before you know it, you're falling on your knees in worship because it's overwhelming. That's exactly what the glory of God does. It overwhelms us. Look at it. Psalm 139, verses 1 to 6. O Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. God knows everything you did today. He knows where you went, what you thought, what you said. He knows everything about you. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in. Behind and before, you have laid your hand upon me. But you know what's sad? A lot of people, they go through life never even considering what David is talking about here. They have no clue. They're totally blind. They're missing the whole picture. But as David is contemplating this, notice what it does to him. Verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Now, that's a fancy word that theologians use, but I've used it earlier tonight, and I want to use it again because, for lack of a better word, I have to use it. They call it transcendence. There, there's something about God that goes beyond anything we can know or understand. That's the glory of God. It's transcendent. And it brings us to our knees. It's too wonderful for us. It's too lofty for us. It is just mind-boggling and mind-blowing. But what it does, it produces worship in our hearts. We want to worship a God like that. It doesn't say you're going to understand him. His ways are so much higher than yours, higher than the heavens are above the earth, but you can still worship him. And there are many, many mysteries about God we don't understand. Don't wait until you understand God to worship him. There are many things that he's hidden from us. And I find, even in teaching my science classes, especially in uh, things like chemistry and physics, if you read between the lines, although these scientists would lead you to believe, oh, we've got it all mapped out, we've got it all charted out, we know the atom, we know energy, we've got it all figured out now. You know what? They don't. They don't even know what light is. They, they have no idea what energy is. You know, some of these basic things you might think that the scientists understand. Well, they know a little bit about them, but they don't know very much. And God has hidden a lot of things from us. He's revealed a few things to us. i never forget a few years back uh, a world-renowned neurologist was being interviewed on TV. It's when this Mary Schiavo case was going on and all this debate about, you know, is she still alive or is she not alive? What's going on in her brain and all of this? So they, they had this world-renowned neurologist, forget his name, and they asked him some questions. And I was very impressed with his humility because with all of his PhDs and doctor this and doctor that, he looked straight in the camera and he said, you know, we really know very little about the human brain and the human nervous system. What a thing to say. The, the top neurologist in the world saying, we know very little about this thing called the brain. <laughs> and I think if more scientists were honest, they would say, you know, we know very little about the universe. We know very little about life. 
we know very little about any name. And the next verse blesses me, Proverbs 25, verse 2. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. There are many things that God has hidden from us, at least for now. Maybe some of these things will be revealed to us later on. But it's the glory of God to hide things, to conceal matters from us. Psalm 102, verse 15, it says, The nations will fear the name of the Lord. All the kings of the earth will revere your glory. We often talk about fearing God. It's not the same fear of, you know, being afraid of your shadow or afraid of the dark. This is a reverential, deep kind of honoring and respecting of God. What does it say? They will revere your glory. Look also in Isaiah 59:19. It says from the west men will fear the name of the Lord, and from the rising of the sun they will revere his glory. You know, as we continue to pray and seek God, my earnest prayer is God fill the church with your glory. When we come together, let your glory overwhelm us. Maybe we won't even be able to stand or talk or perform our ministerial duties. So be it. But let us learn to revere the presence and the glory of God. <clears throat> Finally, and here's where we're going to stop. Psalm 24, verses 7 to 10. We sing a song based on some of these verses, God is the king of glory. It says in verse 7 here, Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. Next time, we're going to look at a number of references in the Old Testament where people saw God's glory. It is something visible. It's something that appears. It shines. It radiates. People can actually see God's glory when it appears. And that's why we've entitled this whole study, Show Us Your Glory. And we're going to find that that is God's heart. He wants us to see his glory. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, but now God is restoring us to a place where we can see his glory. Let's close in prayer tonight, and I would challenge you in this coming week, find some quiet time, maybe just to look up into the sky or take a walk in a park and look at the flowers and listen to the birds. Consider, take time to stop and consider. All of this is a revelation of God's glory. The whole earth is full of his glory. If you can, look up at the night sky and listen to what it's telling you. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you're teaching us. You're opening our eyes more and more to understand that you are the God of glory. You're the king of glory. And everything that you've done reveals your glory. The whole earth is full of your glory. The heavens are shouting out your glory to us. And most of all, you have chosen us to be your church, your house, your holy temple, where you can manifest the fullness of your 
glory. Let the glory of the Lord come upon the church in these last days. Oh God, fill us with your glory. Take the scales off of our eyes. Let us see the rich fullness of your glory all around us, and especially in the face of Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the precious blood of Jesus. We thank you for this gospel of glory that takes us as lost, fallen sinners and makes new creatures out of us. All the old passes away. Everything becomes new. And you set your glory upon us and inside of us. God, bless each and every one participating in this study tonight. We pray that you would keep each one of us until the day of your glorious appearing or until that day when we enter your glory. Prepare each and every one of us with that great hope in our hearts as we await to see you face to face. God bless each one and bless us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.